0: Welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show from Austin, Texas. I'm the internet's Christopher Schmidt. And on today's show, I'm joined with Simon St. Lawrence and talking with Arl Balkin. Arl is a cyborg rights activist and one third of Indy, a tiny nonprofit organization working for social justice in the digital age. At Indy, he works on making Better. Better is a privacy tool that stops trackers while you surf the web on the Safari browser on the iPhone, iPad, and Mac. Before we get started, some things I'd like you to know. The UX Design Newsletter is a weekly list of articles, tutorials, inspiration, handpicked by yours truly. Sign up at uxdesignnewsletter.com and have the best links of the week sent to your email. Speaking of newsletters, you can set it and forget it with a non-breaking space show newsletter. So whenever there's a new show, you just have it sent directly to your inbox sign up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. Did you know that we have a YouTube channel? Well, we do. Watch our unedited episodes at youtube.com slash nonbreaking space show. You can find links discussed in today's episode on our episodes show page on nonbreakingspace.tv. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at teleject, C-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. As always, thank you for telling others about non-breaking space. Now on with the show. So my echo decided to speak at me right now. Kinda of crazy. <laughs> so um, so I, I just want to kick Nice, you have a you
1: have a spy in the house.
0: Right, exactly. I have multiple spies, apparently with uh, smart TVs and smartphones and everything like that, so.
1: Ooh, do you have a Samsung smart TV?
0: No, I do not, no. no. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, actually, we we talked with Simon before, I talked to Simon before, and he was just like, trying to get like, where can I get a dumb TV? I was like, I just, I just.
1: <laughs> well, that's that's an issue, isn't it? I mean, going forward, are we going to have the choice even to not be spied on by default with our everyday things? Um, I think that's a very timely conversation to be had, or maybe we should have had that 10 years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I guess we should just get started like, and try and like kind of frame this discussion as to, to, to what you do exactly. Cause uh, I think, and where I want to go first is probably, uh, on your site, you describe yourself as a cyborg rights activist. Uh, can you describe what that means?
1: Well, um, quite simply, I see our relationship to technology today as that of a cyborg to its organs. Um, The mainstream uh, description of that relationship today is that we have a master butler relationship where we're the master and our technologies are the butlers and we have conversations with them. So, um, and this is of course accentuated by our personal assistants. You said you have Echo uh, speaking to you just then Siri is an example where, uh, it's kind of like, uh, I think you had Steve Krug on your, um, on, on your, uh, show, uh, you know, and don't make me think he has that section where it's master Butler. Um, and so I say to my phone, for example, if I have a thought and I want to store this thought on my phone and not just in my brain, I say to my phone, Hey phone, uh, or Hey Siri, or Hey, you know, Google, um, can you write this down in your notes application? And my phone says, yes, that's great. Um, And and so it's a conversation. That's usually how we see our relationship with technology, where the technology is, of course, subservient to us. Um, And in this model of technology, uh, surveillance becomes what it's always been, basically. Uh, Signals capture between two actors having a conversation. Um, and that's you know, that's what the Stasi used to do. So there's nothing new there. But if we see technology differently, and and I do, and our relationship to technology differently, then uh things become very different. So what if instead, when I have a thought that I don't want to store just in my head, but I want to keep on my phone, what I'm doing is I'm extending my mind and thereby extending myself using this piece of technology. Well, then it would make perfect sense to extend our understanding of the boundaries of the self to include the technologies by which we extend ourselves. And that's what I mean by the cyborg organ relationship. Uh, our technologies today mostly aren't implants. We could have implants and we do have implants, um, especially some medical ones that are, you know, play a very crucial role in keeping certain people alive. Um, but most of our technologies overwhelmingly today are explants. My phone is an organ but it's an external organ it's an explant as i would call it Um, and this is really important because if we see this as our relationship to technology then surveillance for example becomes something very different it becomes an abuse of the self and we have a system of laws and justice we call it human rights law that knows how to deal with abuses of the self. So, you know, you'll hear people saying we need digital rights, a, a bill of a digital bill of rights, data rights. Data doesn't need rights. Human beings need and have and have rights. So, we don't need any of these. We just really need to understand that today with digital technologies, the boundaries of the self are different, and we need to apply the human rights we already have. Uh, to this expanded, extended uh, understanding of the self. And that's what I mean by being a cyborg rights activist. Um, Note, I don't say advocate, because I I do believe that I am a cyborg, um, even though I don't have any implants. And I believe that's our relationship to technology. And I think it's very important for us to protect personhood in the age that we're living in, that we understand this and, and protect those boundaries. That was probably a longer answer than you expected. <laughs> oh no! I was like, "It's really cool." That <laughs> a cool term. No, it's, it's it's so it's not a superficial kind of you know futuristic explanation. It's actually a very humanistic view of, of technology and the role that it plays.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I feel like I, I like your, your explanation as like you're kind of extending yourself into our technologies and like the the uh, the image I had in my mind is like um, when people get into their cars. And they drive around, sort of like what Scott McLeod you know, talks about. Uh, I, I think it was Scott. Like when you get in your car and you get hit by your car, you don't say someone hit my car. They say someone hit me.
1: Me, right? Exactly, right? Yeah, and and you've kind of extended your boundaries as well. You're you, with, with that car, and yes, you say someone hit me. Um, and and there it becomes really important. the The crucial question becomes who owns and controls these technologies by which we extend ourselves. Is it us, individuals, you and me? Christopher, do you own your Echo? Or does Google Incorporated, Alphabet Incorporated own? uh, Sorry, you said Echo, so it's an Amazon uh, device, right? Uh, So does Amazon Incorporated own it? Or, uh, Or your Google Home, does Google and Alphabet own that? Or do you? Now, today, it's Google and Amazon that own them. Uh, And and what does that mean about personhood in our, uh, in the digital age? Uh, What does it mean about who owns and controls us, really, if we see our relationship in this way? And that's why I think this is such a fundamental question. This isn't a question about technology. This is a question about uh, society, about the kind of society we want to live in, and our, our rights and freedoms, uh, in in the uh in, in the world we live in and in the world that we're heading towards
2: I, I share all of those concerns. The thing that's funny to me is that uh I've I've dealt with it by simply not not hiring the butler, not extending myself. Um I don't I don't have an echo. I don't have do you the voice. do you
1: live in a do you live in a cabin in the woods?
2: Uh sort of <laughs> I mean I basically all of my all of my interaction with the surveillance uh Corporation world is through my eyes and my fingers, pretty much. Um, I don't right. have anything listening. I, you know, avoid cameras. Um, and and, and in doing well, so, time, I'm just, I mean, let's.
1: But 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 also, you know, you do work at one of the companies that does practice a lot of surveillance. Yes, and I work. Uh, you, the, you do work at Microsoft. Yeah, I
2: work at the outermost fringe of the empire. But
1: uh, <laughs> right, yes, uh, right. I, I
2: create training videos um, on how to do. I mean, create websites. But uh, <laughs> <yeah>. yes. <laughs>
1: Um, and, 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 it's, and that's actually a very interesting example, because here's a company that, like Apple, doesn't necessarily need to do that, you know, because Microsoft uh, started out, just like Apple, selling products, right? Making products and selling products. And what differentiates Apple today from Google is its business model. They're completely different. Apple still makes and sells products. So, you know, you buy an iPhone and Tim Cook's happy. Tim really doesn't care if you take that phone and throw it out the window, (laughs) right? It'd be a shame, but he's made his profit right there. I mean, it's better if you like, you know, fire up iTunes and buy some movies or get a subscription. That's even better. He's even happier, but he doesn't need that, right? It's icing. Exactly. On the other hand, if you buy an Android phone today uh, and you throw it out the window, Google hates your guts, right? At that point. Because they haven't made any money at all. It's only when you start using that phone and the phone starts tracking everything that you're doing and storing it on their cloud. And for, for them to have this data then to analyze continuously to create a profile of you, which they can then exploit, you know, for their profit motive and, and whatever political motives they may have. That's when they start Gaining value from the relationship you have. So, when we're talking about business models, completely different business models. And I was talking to uh, one of the lobbyists, I was in Brussels recently, uh, one of the Microsoft lobbyists, and I was trying to explain this to him. Um, And I was like, look, you know, you guys have to really understand that you could do what Apple's doing, right? You don't need all that telemetry and all that stuff in windows and logging all of that information you actually could use privacy as competitive advantage like apple does because i mean if you think about that about that relationship two multi-billion dollar companies right at the top of their field two like competitors that are that are both pretty much number one in the field um and neck to neck and there's one thing That one of them can compete in that would make the other one go bankrupt. Now, that's what I would call an absolute competitive advantage. And it's not something you get every day as a corporation, especially when we're talking at this level. Right. Because Apple can provide privacy, which is a thing that people actually do want, believe it or not. Um, It's a positive thing and it doesn't negatively impact their bottom line. and It probably positively impacts it. If Google tried to provide actual privacy i'm not talking about the illusion of privacy right if they actually try to provide actual privacy which is against their business model how they make money they would go bankrupt tomorrow so there's this thing that apple can compete on that would make their main competitor go bankrupt that's absolute competitive advantage microsoft could take advantage of this as well um, I don't think I got through to that lobbyist that day, <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is a uh, Brad Smith. was, uh, we were talking at the same conference uh, in Copenhagen recently. Uh, um, I think he's like, I don't know what his title is. He's president, right? Microsoft. Um, and, you know, I was trying to get that point across there as well. Um, and I don't know, but internally, if you can, if you can try and get that across to them, that it's competitive advantage, then. Who knows? We might have another ally going forward. Well,
2: well. Broadly speaking, I mean, you're talking about Brussels and Copenhagen. It seems like Europe is is trying to teach these companies that there might actually be value there, and it will be regulatory value if nothing else. Um, I spend yes. a lot of. It's not all carrots. There's, they're sticks. Yes, I spent a lot of time in Germany, and people are like, "So, what is what is up with this Google thing? And why are they doing these things?" And uh, you know, GDPR is the
1: hot new acronym, yeah. and. Uh, the uh, the general data protection regulation yes. yeah that's going to be that's that's going to change the game uh, it's not it's not sufficient in and of itself um, to you know uh, change the character of the mainstream and i think push us away from what shoshana zuboff from harvard business school would call surveillance capitalism this is the the social system the techno economical social system um, that we live in uh, but it's a very important first step. At least we're going to be curbing some of the most extreme abuses here in Europe. Um, and that's a very good start. The e-privacy regulation as well. well the,
2: the other piece that I like about that is that it's specifically about Europe. But, you know, honestly, when you're talking about massive computer systems and architecture, it, it it's going to end up being available everywhere in one way or another. And companies may not want to turn it on for their American and other um, customers and or um surveys, uh but they won't be able to say but that's Surveille. impossible we can't imagine doing that that would break all of
1: our systems exactly and that's the key thing because i mean i don't know how much you're aware of this but when people like eric schmidt for example come to speak to you know the european commission or to people here um, The story they tell is a very specific one. They say, look, and this is kind of the story of neoliberalism as well. They say there is no other way, right? There is no alternative. This is how technology is. Technology is an objective vector. It just goes from the past to the future. There's only one way of building technology, and it's our way. And if you don't accept this in Europe, because we can see that you still have companies that just sell products, they don't sell people. If you don't understand this, you're behind the times. You're kind of old Europe. Uh, you hate innovation. You hate job creation. You know all of these buzzwords. Um, unless you do things our way, and I think what you what you touched upon there uh, is 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 exactly correct, uh, Simon. That. Um, This is about saying, no, there is another way. And we know this, you know, both of you know this. We don't have to build centralized surveillance-based technologies, right? The web has become this, uh, and the web is the problem. Uh, But we can build decentralized, zero-knowledge, free and open uh, infrastructure. We'll, of course, have to fund that differently. No venture capitalist is going to invest in that, right? This is not just a technology problem. Um, but we know how to do this. There is no infeasibility here. Um, the reason we're not doing it is uh, there isn't a huge amount, uh, you know, of, of, of um, in in the in terms of the capitalistic success criteria. There isn't a huge amount of financial success to be had uh, in 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 terms of what Silicon Valley would consider success. Uh, but I think we need to change our success criteria. You know, uh, we're talking about infrastructure. That is essential to democracy. That is essential to our human rights going forward. Um, maybe it's it's too important to be left to venture capitalists and to Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah, it just seems like uh, we're we've gotten to this point. You know, with the growth of the web. You know, from the from the eighties to now, is just that. You know, we actually be, we can like, track things and track people on the web. It's sort of like, oh, we can do this. And then we sort of like got painted ourselves to a corner of like, oh, we probably shouldn't be doing this, right? We're like, this is probably a bad idea.
2: It's all my fault. I wrote a book on cookies in 1998. I,
1: I set up, uh-huh. I, I didn't <laughs> first party or third party, because those are different. I covered both, but yes. <laughs> okay. But okay, what? You said 90s, right? Yeah, it wasn't. And, and we were, there, there's so many facets of Yes, this. we hadn't learned a th- lot of us. Sorry. No, no,
2: no. We, we hadn't learned the dangers at that point. It all just seemed like this small thing that was going to make life convenient.
1: Look, to be perfectly honest, a lot of us were lied to, right? Uh, when I started out, I mean, hey, I started out in Flash, all right? Building Flash stuff back in the day when you could only do certain things in Flash. Now we can do all of that in JavaScript and HTML, etc., which is great. Um, and then kind of migrated to the web. and And the promise of the open web you know, the Tim O'Reilly promise of the open web was beautiful. And, and when Tim said, you know, use open APIs and you're helping to build the open web, I believed Tim. And I built a Twitter app. And I was like, Tim, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm going to use Twitter's open API and build a Twitter app. And, uh, and what happened? You know, eventually we realized, wait a minute. These keys, these API keys that we have, they're keys to locks that we don't own to locks that can be changed at any, uh, any time, we're not really building the open web. We're adding value to these closed silos. So you know what we were like to, a lot of us, I don't, you know, if you were to take some sort of a, a survey, I'm sure a lot of people didn't get into this to say, I want to be a peeping Tom. I want to track everyone's movements. I want to, you know, farm people. Cause that's, that's what we're doing. The business model of mainstream technology is what I would call people farming, right? We're farming people for their data, for insight into their lives. We're extracting this it's an extractive process, and then we're exploiting them. This is not nice, right? Um, I don't think we got into this for for that reason. I think maybe a few of us, maybe a couple of sociopaths got into this for that reason. We didn't. We were lied to as well. Um, But it's important for us to understand why this happened right um the web is the problem the architecture of the web and you can say this easily looking back 25 30 years right hindsight being 2020 um the client server architecture was never decentralized that's that's not a decentralized architecture that is exactly the same architecture as mainframe computing in fact i call the web era the mainframe 2.0 era for that reason the difference is in mainframe 1.0 these large computers were limited in scope to the organizations that could afford them, to corporations and a couple of in- educational institutions. Today, they're global in scope. In fact, the uh, then president of IBM, uh, Watson, who the, uh, the the AI is named after now, um, he famously uh, said that he thought that there would only be about five mainframe computers in the world um, at some point, And he was lashed at. Um, he was right. He just skipped the generation. He skipped the personal computing era, which was the last time we actually had decentralized computing. Today, we do kind of have about five mainframe computers in the world. They're called Google, Facebook, maybe Snapchat, Amazon, right? Um, so we need to start understanding what went wrong uh, and, and, and how do we you know, plot a different path Forward from here. And that begins with understanding that if you take a client server architecture, which has centers, the servers are the centers, right? And then you put that into an enzymatic pool of capitalism uh, and venture capital, which says to those centers, grow as rapidly as you can, right? Uh, That's what we're fixated on in Silicon Valley, right? Growth, rapid growth. Um, If that happens, then those centers grow and they begin to coalesce, mergers and acquisitions, right? And then we get the monopolies that we have today of the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons, et cetera. So if we want to plot a different path forward, we need a different network topology. Client server doesn't cut it. The web is not going to fix this. There, a, there are a lot of elements of the web that we can carry forward and we can use as we evolve it. But that client server architecture is not going to fix this. We need a topology, an architecture where every node is equal. And that's a peer-to-peer system. That's a decentralized system where no matter how much economic incentive you put, those nodes don't have an incentive to scale vertically. The, the system scales horizontally. So that's what we need to change. Again, we know how to do this, but this change is not going to come from venture capital or Silicon Valley. Have
2: you, have you followed any of like the decentralized Web Summit stuff from last year, which, which was very Silicon Valley? Um mm. Was that all blockchain and cryptocurrency? Well, part of, it, um, part of it was blockchain and cryptocurrency. And of course, it was like the right. week before Ethereum incinerated itself, sort of. Um, but the. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not talking. The, 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 the pe- I'm not talking. Th- that's yeah. fine. The
2: piece of it that I thought was, was interesting was seeing both Tim Berners Lee and Vince Cerf, who are, you know, sort of the patriarchs of the web and the internet, respectively, acknowledging that something wasn't right. And, you know, sort of, I mean, it was, it was in the Internet uh, Archive, which is a former church. So it was, it was kind of a strange, like, blessing laying on of hands for, you know, go forth and do something different.
1: I don't know. I mean, it's, it's good to hear different groups talking about this. But when you have the royal court acknowledging that maybe there is an issue with the monarchy, um, <laughs> I think you need to kind of ask yourself how much you're going to weight that and and don 't get me wrong you know i've i've uh i've met and spoken to tim um i think i think he he has the best of intentions in whatever he 's doing he 's a particle physicist he's not i don 't think he's involved in the politics of of all of this i don't think he's involved in uh the the financial aspects of all of this and i think there are people who are um who who maybe are much more influential in in uh, in certain aspects of it. Um, Vince Cerf, well, you know, he works at Google now.
2: Um, so
1: again, the, I, I think... Sorry, That was the
2: mysterious part, but yes.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. So, you know, when, when like I said earlier, you know, when you have a king coming up to you and saying... Um, I wonder if there's a problem with inequality in our monarchy. You're kind of like, yeah, well, there is, but I don't think you're going to solve it necessarily. Uh, It's not necessarily in your interests or in the interest of the system for you to solve this problem. Because remember, as far as Google and Facebook are concerned, for example, there is no problem, right? Within the system we live in, within our success criteria, they are hugely successful. Um, Just look at their bank accounts and the number of zeros in there. They're hugely successful. The problem is for us, for individuals. It's our rights that are under threat right now. It's uh, democracy itself. You look at things like fake news. It's like you know propaganda by any other name. Um, why do we have fake news today? Well, gee, we don't have a free press anymore. We've replaced the publishing industry with the behavioral advertising industry, where ad tech, right, um, where we follow the eyeballs wherever they go. Um, And and that doesn't need to go to truth. That needs to go to the most attention-grabbing thing, right? Um, So, you know, that's why we have it. In in Europe, there is uh, one of the biggest publishers uh, is Axel Springer. So Europe-wide, one of the biggest publishers, they got into a court case recently, and their lawyer for their side actually said, and I quote, um, so wait, the exact words were, uh, the The business of the plaintiff, which is Axel Springer, the biggest publisher in Europe, um, is to deliver advertising to its uh, users. Journalistic content is a vehicle to get people to to view the ads. So journalistic content, basically, he's saying, is bait to get people to view the ads. Why do we have fake news? This is why we have fake news right? Is this detrimental to democracy? Yes. Is a couple of corporations knowing everything that everyone is doing and saying and communicating detrimental to democracy? Does it have chilling effects? Do you, do you censor yourself when you know you're being watched and listened to? Yes. So, you know, these are fundamental issues. Um, and they're not, this is not a technology problem. This is, again, as Shoshana Zuboff would call it, a surveillance capitalism problem. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's also a, a cultural problem, you know, trying to get people to understand who aren't techies, uh, even though they're being su- surveillance, under surveillance. But also, I just I also want to talk about, I'm not sure I mentioned this, is that, uh, you know, recently I just came across a story that uh, China is actually working with uh, companies with credit scores to create a social credit score, right? And yeah. so that just like – so it's not just, you know, capitalism, but it's also just, you know –
1: Uh, Oh, but but China China is capitalist, right? Uh, China has entirely embraced capitalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, if in the US, for example, people aren't aware of that, um, they're going to start becoming way more aware of it as China starts to buy the surveillance infrastructure that Silicon Valley is creating. It's already happened, right? Opera, which was a darling of the web Mm -hmm. at one point. um, And it was okay that they were doing things like, you know, client side compression. Ah, uh, sorry, server side compression of, of your browsing uh, because they were just trying to be helpful. Right? right. I mean, who cares that that meant that they could see everything you were browsing? Right. Um, until I think it was last year, a Chinese consortium bought Opera and they also bought its VPN service, which isn't really VPN. It's a proxy. Um, and so they could see everything that everyone was doing, which they can with a VPN anyway. Um, and then some people started becoming afraid. They're like, wait a minute. I was okay when it was a bunch of, you know, uh, what is it, white Norwegians, uh, you know, looking at everything that I'm doing because they kind of look like me and they sound like me. It's cool. Uh, They're zany. Chinese consortium. Huh. Maybe I should be afraid. You know, we had the same surveillance system in place under Obama. Far fewer people were worried the moment Trump became president. People like, wait a minute. Now he has access to all of this you know um i think part of what we're seeing is people with a lot of privilege who are not negatively impacted by this uh who can afford to be unaware so you know today if you are a gay person living in a country where that's punishable by incarceration or worse then you very much care that Facebook knows whether or not you're gay based on your likes. You care about that because you know that could be leaked to your government and and, and probably will be. Um, If you're living in San Francisco and you're gay, you probably don't care about that too much right now, right? Um, But I think where even people with a lot of privilege are going to start to care is for example when you go to you know um, your insurance company mm-hmm. next time around um, and they and and you look at your premiums and you go whoa what happened to my premiums why are they so high right now and they're like well we're sorry your your fridge told us what you're eating mm-hmm. you know um, and by the way you know based on Tinder you're engaging in some risky behavior uh, that's when I think people with more privilege are going to start to realize oh wait a minute. Um, and I think we, we gotta be careful not to leave it to that point because that's going to make it much harder to change things. Right. Uh, people in Silicon Valley Valley are already frothing at the mouth when it comes to things like insurance, you know, we call it like e-health or whatever, but it's really insurance that they're really lusting after right now.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I'm not sure how, uh, true this article was, but, uh, cause I, Hard for me to discern uh, news coming from the UK. <laughs> it's just like whether it's a good publication or not. But
1: uh, wait, it, what's the publication? Sorry, I, I forgot which one.
0: I forgot which one it was. It could be the Globe or
1: uh, if it if it if it was a Daily Mail, then don't believe it.
0: Okay, uh, <laughs> <All right>.
1: but <laughs> if it was the Guardian, probably or Observer, maybe. Um,
0: <laughs> I, th- I think may I just heard on the radio, but it was just like it, they told they talked about how like if you're overweight or you have uh, like an eating issue, like if you're overweight or whatever, that they might put you in the back of the queue for medical. Uh,
2: Treatment.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this look, again, this is a system um, that uh, makes infants of us, right? In a sense. If there are a couple of very powerful entities that know everything about everyone else, and everyone else, you know, doesn't have that same reciprocal relationship, then we become infants in a sense. and And we have these new kings or gods or whatever you call them. And, you know, we have to trust that they're benevolent. And that they're acting in our interests. Um, And we tried this. We tried this with monarchy, you know, uh, in the past. And and we moved away from that. And I'd hate to see us move back. I mean, you mentioned China and uh, credit scoring there. If you want to understand where Silicon Valley would love to be in five years' time, look at China. Right? right? Um, And I don't say this lightly. Facebook actually has a patent for exactly the same thing, for using your social graph for credit scoring they haven't actually built this, but they have a patent for it. So, you know, would they in a heartbeat if they could get away with it today?
0: Totally. Yeah, because it's like right now, like the China social credit score is like they're actually testing it out. So it's voluntary, it's a volunteer system right now, but their goal is by 2020, it's mandatory, mandatory use. Just, and, like, right. and, if, and if you don't score well, uh, for whatever reasons, like, you know, they could restrict your access to food, your right to travel. And and people are just saying that, you know, they're not, that, that's like, that's not chilling, like, to anyone.
1: No, but I mean, it already, again, already, like, you know, fe- in Facebook's patent, it's based on who your friends are. So you come from a poor neighborhood, mm-hmm. and that's going to affect your credit score. Um, maybe you interact with cert- certain groups that are seen as, you know, uh, less desirable. Mm-hmm maybe on racial boundaries, for example, which Facebook has been known to, you know, both keep track of and allow others to use in their advertising. Um, and suddenly your credit score drops. Right. Uh, again, the problem is that we've created a feudal system. Our new kings are, you know, the Zuckerbergs and the Schmidt's and, and, and uh, the, the Bezoses. Uh but they're kings. This is not a democratic system. This is not compatible with democracy. Um, and, it's, and, and, and it was built, we have to understand, it's structural, right? Um, surveillance capitalism, those two words, they work together. It's the feedback loop between capitalism, which is about the accrual of wealth, and surveillance, the accrual of information, and how that accrual of information then leads to greater accrual of wealth, where it was only made possible by the wealthy investing in the mechanisms by which the information was accrued, right, to begin with. So that's the venture capital, the already wealthy investing in means, that means that they have more information and more wealth, and it's this feedback loop. Um, And if you wanna know where that's gone today, like not where it's going, uh, look at the statistics from Oxfam. Based on their calculations today, um, we know that five men There are no women in this statistic. Five men have as much wealth, the the wealthiest five, have as much wealth as half of the world's poorest population combined. That's five men in the world that have as much wealth as 3.5 billion people. Now, you can can visualize five, right? Because we have it on one hand. Now, try and visualize 3.5 billion. That's systemic inequality. And those five men, it's no coincidence. Who are they? Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Ellison, Oracle, Michael Bloomberg, Bloomberg. Do you see a connection? That's surveillance capitalism.
2: I I'd like to shift to a different angle of credit scores and surveillance capitalism, <laughs> which is sure, Which is that these kings are, are before people shoot themselves in in in, uh, in depression. I don't think <laughs> I'll make anybody happier with this one. Um, <laughs> okay. The other the other challenge we have, and this goes back to the very beginnings of surveillance capitalism, I, you can talk about like credit rating in the 1800s, you can talk about all kinds mm. of madness in the 20th century, um, is that the incentives are basically all set up to treat the those of us who would like to think of ourselves as customers as the product. And so the, the classic one in the U.S. recently was the Equifax, um, all our data are belong to you, Uh, kind of problem um, in
1: which you know that's crazy isn't it that that's just crazy they knew you, you know that like they were told about the issue six months before they did anything about it and they were told that essentially all of that information was available on the on the web if you knew how to access it the url um and they didn't do anything until the leak, the the I, I, I can't even call it a leak, whatever. That, until it actually became public, um, and they only fixed it. It's amazing. Sorry, right, so no, that, keep no that's explicit.
2: okay. Uh, but yeah, the 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 tricky part is, for, I mean, from from their perspective, it's like, oh man, all the stuff we sell just went away, um, <laughs> because you know, but but basically all of that inform all of that information that was suddenly publicly available has been privately available for a small fee for for decades. Um, and you know, I suddenly have my friends coming up and saying, there was this big breach and, and now everybody can know everything. And I'm like, well, they could have asked for about 10 bucks and found out most of it anyway. Um, how, how do we, how do we get this? You know, there's been a breach, but it's really been a privacy issue from the outset. How, how can we tell that story to people? And, not just get them to be depressed.
1: No, I, I think that's a very good question. I think there are lots of ways to do it. Um, I mean, for the past four years, a lot of my work has been trying to do that, trying to uh, express what the problem is in as accessible a manner as possible. Um, and and that's very important because, you know, some of the groups that are working on solutions, et cetera, aren't always the best communicators. Uh, you know, if you're talking about the Free Software Foundation, for example, I have utmost respect for them not the best communicators always, uh, you know, and I think we need to also in those groups that are working on alternatives that do care about these issues, we have to be very careful um, on the one hand, not to foster such a strong identity that we get so attached to that identity of being counter to the mainstream that, you know, if the mainstream was ever to get better, we would lose that identity. Um, and, and that creates this weird irony where, you know, people actually care about that identity and work in ways that don't enable the mainstream to change. And you see this in in Berlin, for example, in the counterculture there, uh, there are rites of passage, people dress a certain way, they have certain stickers on their laptops. It's creating a culture counter to the mainstream uh, that they then begin to really like and don't wanna give up. So we need to be very careful to to stay away from that as well in those areas where, you know, in those groups that, that care about solving this problem. But also to understand this is about You know, if we're talking about fixing this, this is about creating the new everyday things in a different way, in a way that's ethical, in a way that respects human rights and human effort and human experience, you know, that we have an ethical design manifesto at Indy, and those are the core tenets of it. Respect human rights at at the core, respect human effort, respect human experience. We do this, problem solved, right? Um, How do we fund the organizations that can do this? Well, it's not going to come from venture capital, So let's start thinking about uh, what it means for us today in where we are today, where we don't have a public sphere anymore. We don't have any public space anymore online because it's all private space. And it's worse than that. It's private space that masquerades as public space. So Twitter says to you, hey, I'm a park come have conversations here, come express yourself, practice your freedom of speech, which I know in the U S is, you know, a huge thing. Um, and Facebook does the same thing, right? Uh, we're a park. No, you're a shopping mall, Facebook. You're not a park. You're just pretending to be a park. Where are our parks? Where are our digital parks today? We don't have them, right? Because venture capital doesn't fund parks. It funds, uh, shopping malls. So if we want parks, then we're going to have to fund them in the same way we funded parks and we funded roads and we funded sidewalks. If we want infrastructure that isn't privately, corporately owned. Um, And that's that's from the Commons. And again, I really don't see this happening in the US. I mean, I prove me wrong, please. And I would be the happiest guy. Um, But I, I see maybe a chance in Europe. And because of like the the historic approach to things being slightly different, um, you know, they're not Europe isn't as enamored with the corporate system um, as much as I think it's so ingrained in the culture in the US a little bit where we assume corporations are good and corporations are, you know, that's what you that's government bad corporations good kind of seems to be the thing here. We're kind of still there's still an aspect of maybe big corporations not so good either. Um, So maybe there's a chance in Europe. I don't know. I would love to be proven wrong on this. I mean, there are some uh, efforts coming out of the US, like platform cooperatism, uh, which is the hardest word ever to say. um, But cooperatives, basically, you know, instead of platform monopolies, what if we had the people who actually like instead of an Uber, where Uber is the monopoly, and all the drivers are getting screwed. And of course, the the customers to some degree as well. What if we had an Uber that was owned by the drivers? So that's a good step, right? It's not necessarily where we could be if it was funded from the commons, but it's a good intermediary step. And that's coming out of, you know, the U.S. So I hope I'm proven wrong, but I think there's a lot of hope. I think what's happening, like you said, Simon, GDPR, uh, General Data Protection Regulation, the e-privacy regulation that's now at the European Parliament, Um, there's huge lobbying, And you guys have to understand that there's there's a huge amount at stake here for these corporations. Right. Um, So there's there. Google is the number one lobbyer of the European Commission right now, uh, for example. And five years ago, they weren't lobbying at all. So just to give you an idea of where things are. uh, But even despite that, the European Parliament has rebuked it. like their changes several times now on the privacy regulation. Um, and so that's that's very important. It's going to mean things like a website cannot detect your tracker blocker and not allow you access. That's going to be illegal in Europe coming up. You know, there there are aspects like this. The regulation is important. That's one part of it. We got to regulate, but we also got to replace them with ethical alternatives. And I think that's what we do. We regulate and replace. It's as simple as that.
0: Yeah, I think the the lobby bill for the top five companies will probably equal some small countries. GDP so but uh,
1: uh, Probably yeah, probably and it's that and, and and that's basically uh, You know lobbying it's not just lobbying. We're talking about revolving doors So I'll talk about Europe again because that's where I live. That's what I know about. I know I have this American accent. I'm not American uh, <laughs> I went to British schools. It was the 80s. Hollywood was cool. So, you know, I blame that um, and uh, so talking about Europe in 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 the uh uh in the european commission so someone could be working today to safeguard the interests of citizens european citizens by regulating privacy violations by google for example and in two years time they could be working at google right that's a revolving door so we've got lobbying we've got revolving doors and those doors revolve both ways right And, and sometimes continuously, uh, or several times. Um, we've got multi-stakeholderism, which sounds like a good thing. You know, It was originally in response to, for example, in the UN, only governments having access to certain decision-making uh, processes to say, look, we need to hear from more stakeholders. And of course, the people who said you need to hear from more stakeholders weren't just non-governmental organizations, NGOs, et cetera, they were corporations saying, you need to hear from us as well, right? Um, fast forward to today, you look at the UN and it's basically an entirely neoliberal institution with, with corporations having huge sway. Um, so uh, multi-stakeholderism, co-regulation, uh, Google, come to the table, tell us, how should we regulate you on privacy? And they're like, oh yeah, well, we, we have some ideas on that. Uh, you know, uh, Jeff actually prepared a presentation um so co-regulation which is the next step up from self-regulation initially of course they didn't want regulation at all um i was in 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 london i remember at a cocktail party talking to eric schmidt and calling him out on it when i first started like four years ago really started tackling the subject um and his book had just come out uh with jared cohen who you know, of course, was working with Condoleezza Rice, uh, and uh, he was like, you know, just laying it on the government. Governments shouldn't have this data, etc. Which is a very core libertarian kind of thing. And I was like, but Eric, um, and it was a surreal event. It was like um, a, a friend of mine who's a model had invited me, and so there were like actors and stuff around. I'm like, um, and I was like, Eric, why should you have this data, right? It was a very simple question, um, and um, he told me two things that I'll never forget. One. He said, if we become too evil, we'll never find anyone to work for us. We'll get back to that one. And (laughs) the other one was, you know, I wake up every morning and I fight regulation. It's what I do. It's my job. Right. Um, So they're aware of this and they're aware that this could kill the business model going forward, which requires no regulation. So initially it was about self-regulation. Let us regulate ourselves. When they can't get away with that it's co-regulation let's let's work together to regulate us right and at some point we have to say look no right we went through this with the with big tobacco right let's not go through it with big data again right um it's the big tobacco playbook remember initially there were doctors um on tobacco ads saying here's the brand of cigarette that i smoke right fast forward to today a doctor does that they don't have a job tomorrow What changed? It's because tobacco, big tobacco, became socially unacceptable. And that's a huge step in how we win this. If people farming becomes socially unacceptable, then we start to win this. Um, And that's key to understand, right? Um, But that means that those of us with legitimacy in the field, in the industry, etc., have to stop legitimizing these companies, Every person, remember I said we were, we were fooled too. We were lied to, right? But every person who knows and understands this now and continues to work at Google, continues to work at Facebook when they could not, and we have a lot of privilege. I'm not talking about people working in the cafeteria. I'm talking about people with very specific skills. I'm talking about skills that you know are sought after. And there are companies there that sell products, not people, right? Who continue to willingly, knowingly do this. We're legitimizing them. Organizations like Mozilla, which we love on the web, right? They're creating an open web. Mozilla used to get its $400 million a year from Google. Now it gets it from Yahoo. This legitimizes that business model. It gets all of its money from surveillance capitalism, from ad tech, from people being tracked, profiled. This is incompatible with its mission statement, and we're legitimizing it. They are the doctors in the tobacco ads. And we have to stop that if we want to fix this, because we're only going to start winning this when Google and Facebook become socially unacceptable. When just like today, if you're a graduate and you're smart and you know your stuff, you don't say, I want to work at Philip Morris. Who says that? Who says, hey, I want to work at Philip Morris, right? Nobody. So if in five years time, that's Google and Facebook, then we've started to make inroads. And I actually said this at a, at a conference I was at recently, not realizing there was a table full of people from Philip Morris standing next (laughs) to me. And I only realized this, they didn't tell me, I only realized this because they were all intently listening to me as I was like, I had a group of people and I was like saying, you know, and nobody says this about, and then their faces just dropped. (laughs) And I felt bad. I did feel bad, but a part of me is like, but also, yeah, you know, we need to make this change and this change is not going to be without pain. And it's not going to be convenient for all of us. We're probably in a space and we probably have a privilege where it'll be less convenient. uh, I mean, less inconvenient for us to try and help make this change. And I think we we have a responsibility to, you know, do you guys want to live in this world? In in the kind of the, the surveillance based world that Google and Facebook has created, knowing that we can build something better? Well,
0: I mean, it's no, I guess <laughs> not really, but also like my my uh you know I, you put like a lot of heavy things on the scale to think about, and so my grain of sand on top of that is the thought of the people who are in charge of the databases, like you know w- w- like let me step back a little bit more is this that I think America you know for the last twenty years with the web growth of of data and stuff like that that you know, yeah, I think you know corporations have boomed obviously with google and, and amazon but you know in our governments, you know i'm talking about the city and state level you know kind of like the pain points of getting technology and you find the people to uh generate that technology solutions that they need to, to grow and sustain the cities and states and so like that is like kind of helpful in a way because like you know it kind of like straps them from being evil if you will uh to do that and so so my concern, and this is the grain of sand, is that when you get people uh, that don't know what they're doing or uh, in charge of those databases, in charge of those things, they might like say they mistype your name. And all of a sudden you're somewhere else you're not supposed to be. And then you're fighting uh, for your cyber identity, if you will, your, your cyber rights, because you're trying to get that fixed.
1: Sorry, I was just saying. Do you mean like if if states were to take over these uh, the running of these things, etc. Is that what you're talking about? Right.
0: Yeah. So like you know with the like China's social score, like let's say there was a mistake with your credit score. Oh yeah. Like like yeah, like yeah. Well, what is where is your recompense? Like well, like where do you go to buy back your your digital like rights? Right? I, I
1: I've seen this. I've seen this being voiced quite. Uh, loudly recently, like there were, there were a couple of, uh, articles going around making the rounds about how we should nationalize Facebook, right? Um. We should absolutely not nationalize Facebook. That is the absolute worst thing we could do. What you don't want to take is to take a a corporate entity that has all of this information and then give all that information directly to a government that, again, has the right to incarcerate you or maybe even in some places, you know, take your life away from you. Uh, That is absolutely the last thing we must do. We need to decentralize this so no one has the information. Um, If we're talking about data, right, we're talking about two different. Aspects in one word, which is a problem data. We use it as a generic term, right? Are we talking about rocks or are we talking about people? Oh, I don't know. It's data. Uh, so how should we regulate it? Well, it's very important. The difference is very important because again, I can't emotionally or physically hurt a rock. Um, I can do that to you, to a person. I can't incarcerate a rock. I can't deprive a rock of its life. I can do all of that to people. So it's pretty clear that that one of these deserves more thought and and more, more, more consideration. Otherwise, one of those two is going to get the short end of the stick and it's not going to be the rock, right? But we do this all the time. We just talk about data, like some generic magical term, right? Data is just information. What is it about? If it's about rocks, in other words, the commons, the world around us, Well, I would argue that that information belongs to all of us. That should be in the commons, right? Uh, Information about, like, mapping information about your, your country should belong to you as a citizen of that country, not necessarily to Google. But information about you, Christopher, should belong to you, not to some corporation, not to some government, right? And then you decide, as a person with autonomy, You know as as where where we can actually protect your the integrity of your personhood you decide what you want to share with others and what you want to keep to yourself which is basically the fundamental definition of privacy what do you want to share with others what do you want to keep for yourself um that's it right that's decent that's a decentralized topology so no do not nationalize facebook let's break facebook into a billion pieces and i don't mean literally right let's build a system where we can have the advantages of facebook but the data, if there are a billion people using the system, is in a billion places, where every node, you, Simon, are equal in that system. That's a decentralized system. What That's it, how we fix it. What that. does that look like?
2: That's the, the thing I've always run into is I'm talking with people about you know, diaspora or the early days of IRC oh, or oh, 50 different no. – there, there have been okay. a lot of attempts at similar yeah. stories, most of which turn out to be centralized anyway. Um,
1: yeah. Um, what it looks like at its very core is, um, let me try and give you an analogy that I haven't used before. You remember those telephones where you had a wire between like two tin cans as kids, mm-hmm. right? That was a decentralized system, right? There was no operator in the middle, right? You had a direct connection. Now take that and scale it up, right? Um, so we need to do two things in that sort of a system if we want to scale it up. I need to be able to find you. And I need to be able to know that if I say something into that tin can, it gets to you. So findability and availability, right? Um, so what would that system look like? It would look like my design for it would be that every one of us has our own place on the internet, right? Um, this is a little tiny piece of storage and functionality, a node that is always available on the internet. Now, because it's always available that means that's not in a little you know box in your in your room in your house because unless you're a techie you're not going to be able to keep that always available um that's going to be hosted by someone else someone with the technical knowledge and you shouldn't need technical knowledge so for it to be private it needs to be the private aspects need to be end-to-end encrypted then right so imagine an end-to-end encrypted node right that is just one node Uh, It connects to all of your smart things, your smartphone, et cetera, and they all synchronize, right? But that node has a domain name, so I know how to find you, findability, and it's hosted by some third party, so it's available always, so it's availability, right? We build this infrastructure, what it looks like to you should be, it looks like your messaging app that you use every day. It looks like your photo sharing app that you use every day. Uh, if it looks any different to that, no one's going to use it. This is the problem with diaspora, for example. You said, oh, what about, you know, because everyone brings that up and, I, and you're right to bring it up. Um, what were they doing there? Th- these were people who really cared about the issues, etc. And there are lots of people like that. And they got together and they said, how do we build a decentralized social network? Right. Let's fix the problem of a decentralized social network. Nobody has that problem. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I wish there was a decentralized social network I could use, right? I mean, heck, I've been programming for 30 years. I don't do that. I might wake up and say, Here's a photo, um, and I want to share it with a friend of mine. And how can I do that without maybe anyone else knowing? Now, that's a real problem, but they weren't fixing that problem. Um, And this is a problem that we have in these communities where, you know, a lot of times we're building cool toys for ourselves, which is fine, which is great. But they're not going to be magically uh, usable products for the mainstream. And that's very important for us to understand, right? Um, I mean, imagine, imagine, for example, that like, you have a classic car, right? And you're an enthusiast. And you love working on this thing. Like, you built it yourself. You, took, you got the parts together. And you put it together. And every time this car that you built breaks down, you are happy you are ecstatic because it means you get to spend the weekend working on your classic car and you love it because that's your hobby. You're an enthusiast. You love that, right? So that's kind of how we are in the free and open source world. Sometimes we have these classic cars we love working on and we love it when they break because it means we get to tinker with them. And there's nothing wrong with that. We learn a lot from that. The problem is we then extend that and we say, Everyone should drive these classic cars we're making to work into the market every day. And that's where it fails, right? Because perhaps even if you have that classic car, you don't drive it to the market and to work every day. You have a Honda Civic you drive to work and to to, enter the market every day because you know that car doesn't break down. And if it breaks down, even though you love working on your classic car, you know, you're pissed off because that means you don't get to work and you don't get to the market. So I think what we need to understand in these groups is we need to be building the Honda Civics, right? We need to be building those in the ethical, in an ethical way, not classic cars where people have to buy the engine separately, right? It's like, what, what is that? It's like, it's, it's, oh, if you want an alternative, use Linux, uh, which distribution? Which distribution? That's saying which engine? Nobody buys a car that way, right? You go, you buy a car, you drive it home. That's what we need to do. Um, that's where we're failing. Uh, And and, and, and it's encouraging to see groups that are understanding this purism, for example, uh, a company, small company, they're building laptops, Linux laptops, where they control the software, they control the hardware. um, It just works. They just, I think, had a crowdfunding for a phone. And hopefully, they're going to make those two talk to each other. I hope so. Um, So, you know, there's, there's a little bit of hope there. There are people who are beginning to understand this. The real challenge of our times, or our time really, is how do we build the new everyday things in a way in which they happen to be ethical? If we think people are going to use them because they're ethical, because of the ideology, then we're going to fail. They need to be beautiful, usable, everyday, convenient things that just happen to be ethical. And that's an important, important consideration for us, for those of us who are hopefully going to be making these things. <laughs> and then theres silence, and that was it.
2: <laughs> it's a beautiful vision. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to stop there, and I, I'd forgotten about the Purism phone and well?
1: yes. And you know what? And you know what? We have a chance to make it a reality. So, one of the experiences I had recently that's given me the most hope was I was recently in Ghent in the city of Ghent, and I was invited by the city of Ghent uh, to do their opening keynote for their first conference uh about the future um, so uh, they call it foresight um and Ghent is a very special city uh they have a, an interesting history so when when for example, I was told this story when I was invited, they said um when they built the castle in Ghent in the middle of Ghent and the fortifications around the castle, they didn't build that against outside invaders. They built the fortifications against the people of Ghent. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a very progressive town, uh, and, 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 uh, it, it's quite special. So they basically from the beginning, because you touched upon cities, for example, um, and we have this whole smart city thing that's coming out of the Silicon Valley. Uh, and they were always opposed to that. And their vision was much more, well, we need smart citizens. Again, you know, who, who's getting smarter about whom? Is it a couple of corporations getting smarter about you? Or is it you getting smarter about yourself? You can ask that about anything that has smart as, uh, as a qualifier next to it, right? Um, is my phone getting smarter about uh, is my is, Am I getting smarter about myself? Is my phone getting smarter and I own that? or is a company getting smarter about me, right? So they basically, uh, when I started doing my research before my talk, um, I found that they wanted to create a city of people. And uh, you know what I always talk about is that we need an internet of people, not an internet of things that spy on you and you know, uh, owned by corporations, an internet of people where people are, have primary agency and control and ownership. And so when I saw the city of people, I was like, Hey, this sounds compatible. And then the next thing I looked at, I was like, wait a minute. The city of Ghent is one of the first cities to have its own top level domain name. Now tie that back to what I was saying earlier, right? What if we could all have our top level domain names? And it was, and, and, and and it was as easy as getting, uh, you know, your name on Facebook where Facebook gives you an identity, right? What if getting your own identity that you owned and control was as simple? Because it's not today, right? To set up your own decentralized node of anything, like Mastodon, for example. Are you guys aware of Mastodon? Uh, it's it's des- federated decentralized Twitter, right? And it's beautiful and it works really great. Um, Joinmastodon.org, I think it is. Uh, check it out. Really awesome. Not venture capital funded, uh, and it, getting your own Mastodon instance up though, like I did this for myself. I have my own Twitter of one that can talk to everyone else's Twitter, not to their accounts, to their Mastodon instances. Some might have a hundred people, a thousand people, um, and it took me half a day, right? With technical knowledge, I had to register a domain, I had to get a uh, server space, I need to set it up, etc. Blah 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 blah. Getting your identifier and getting started with Facebook is thirty seconds. This is the key design challenge of our time. How do we make getting your own place on the internet, in a you know, uh, getting you up and running with your own node, 30 seconds instead of six hours? Now, that's orders of magnitude difference. You change something that's fundamental by orders of magnitude, you usher in a new era of technology, uh, what I would call the next decentralized era of technology. Because, you know, we had mainframes, then we had personal computing, which was decentralized. Mainframes were centralized, personal computers decentralized the web centralized unfortunately what's coming next personal networking maybe where it is decentralized right um that would usher in that era that order of magnitude difference so if anyone's looking for a design challenge to fix this is it but bring it back to ghent they have their own top level domain dot ghent so i was like wait a second we could start it here Two hundred sixty thousand people right that's ghent what if we got 260,000 people, their own domain, right, under 30 seconds because we could do it because we own it, right, um, in a way where they could communicate with each other and they could communicate with the city where they're in ownership and they're in control. Um, so I basically made my keynote into a proposal for the city, and I said that at the beginning. I was like, this is not just a presentation. It's a proposal for you, and I want you to tell me what you think at the end because if you want to build this, I will help you build this. Um, and I presented it and I got off the stage and I went to their head of strategy, uh, Carl Philippe. And I said, so what do you think? And he said, let's do it. So, you know, since then we've also had very favorable, uh, favorable reception from the city, from the mayor's office. So we're going to very quietly be looking into what we can do on that. Uh, but that gives me a lot of hope. And I want you to imagine that maybe this is a good point to end on. I want you to imagine What would it mean to have 260,000 people, a whole city, with their own nodes on the internet, where they can all communicate to each other, they can communicate with uh, the city, and maybe they can communicate with other people who are on this federated network because it's not a silo. Let's say we were using Mastodon for it just wildly, right? Let's just say we're using Mastodon. Um, What would the next generation of the web look like if it was built on a messaging protocol? where we could actually expand the semantics of the messaging in the messages themselves. You know, just think about that. Because, you know, that might just happen. And I think that would change things. Positively. You know, you always hear about the the Steve Jobs quote, uh, make a dent in the universe. Um, I think any buffoon with a sledgehammer can make a dent in the universe. I think the important thing is making a meaningful dent. And uh, that's what I'd like to see us do. Let's make a meaningful dent in the universe. And I think you know this has a chance to do that. So I'm full of hope. Uh, if, if it comes across in any other way, I think being aware of the problems and being aware of the issues is hugely important because otherwise we don't know that we need to make a change. But that shouldn't make you pessimistic in any way or depress you in any way because we already know what the alternatives look like we already know that they're possible we just need the will and imagination to make them happen and i am confident that we will
0: awesome that's i'm inspired now so
1: <laughs> that's like good. A valid good Victory address that's great <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's up to all of us. It's up to the people who are watching this podcast right now. You are the ones that are going to make this change. It's not going to come from me. It's, you know, we're trying. There are lots of other groups that are trying, but it's all of us, you know, and all we need to do really is to decide the kind of world we want to live in. Is it this one? Some of us might be benefiting from this as well, but are you comfortable with it? And if you're not, then, you know, maybe not selfishly, but maybe this is enlightened self-interest build the world that you want to live in that's the only thing we need to do to change things for the better we don't need philanthropy we don't need charity etc we don't even need to go that far just enlighten self-interest build the world you want to live in um, and uh, yeah and 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 I'm sure that we will
0: awesome well uh, thanks so much that was that was great you have a lot, a lot for me to think about but uh, uh, how, how can people uh, find more about uh, your uh, your work and um, and your message yes.
1: well I'm very easy to find online um, which is not ironic uh, again you know privacy is about having the choice of what you want to keep to yourself and what you want to share um, I have a lot I want to share so um, ar.al if you just remember my first name and put a dot in the middle mm-hmm. that's my website you can find links to everything there um, our little not-for-profit that we run with Laura who you had on the uh, the podcast earlier uh indie, ind.ie which no one ever gets i thought that was the coolest domain <laughs> i was like indie, ind.ie wow i can't believe i got the domain it was hard and everyone's like so ind.ie so are you based in ireland i'm like no just read the word <laughs> um but you you don't you can't win out all of them uh <laughs> vanity domains um but yeah, and, and of course, you know, Laura and I work on making a uh, a tracker blocker called Better, um, which you can find out about at better.fyi, um, and that uh, blocks tracking on uh, on iOS and Mac. And that's that's our way of basically doing technological regulation. It's not legislative regulation, but it's actually saying, you know, you will not track. <laughs> and we can actually do that on this platform that gives us the ability to do that. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's basically it really. Um, and I'm on Mastodon as well. So you can find that on my website. Um, and I am on Twitter and, and you can even find me on Facebook because, uh, right now that's the infrastructure we have and we're going to, uh, use it under protest. Um, we're going to use it not as the canonical location of our, of the information we want to communicate, but as a distribution channel. Uh, some of the indie web people have a a very good narrative on how that works if you look at that um and uh yeah so i'm easy to find and uh please feel free to get in touch i, I don't bite often <laughs> usually not too hard
0: <laughs> well i uh i appreciate being on the, on the show it's, it's been a great hour i love it
1: well thank you thank you so much for having me and and likewise and it's nice to be able to see you simon i can see you now i couldn't at the very beginning
2: yeah something <laughs> weird it's all good this has been awesome